This is an ABC podcast. Hello there and welcome to Between the Lines, on air, online or via your ABC Listen app. This is Tom Switzer and it's always great to have your company. Now later on in the show, the generation who will inherit the extraordinary fallout from the COVID crisis. Stay tuned for my discussion with two future leaders, just how do they see the handling of the pandemic and what do they see as the path to recovery? But first, the new alliance with the US. Well, the big news last week that the US will share sensitive nuclear submarine technology with Australia, that's attracted its fair share of critics. Australia, we're told, is out of touch with Asia, which has not made a choice about the US-China dilemma. According to the critics, the AUKUS agreement constitutes a dramatic loss of sovereignty because it would rob Australia of freedom of choice in a future conflict where the US goes to war. Moreover, in any Western Pacific conflict, the US could not defeat China. That's what we're told. So to address these criticisms, let's hear from one of Australia's leading defence strategists. Peter Jennings has been Executive Director of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute in Canberra for nearly a decade. He's a former Deputy Secretary for Strategy in the Defence Department and a Chief of Staff to the Minister for Defence. Peter, welcome back to the show. Tom, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, first, your thoughts on the AUKUS agreement. I think this is one of the most important pieces of uh, international alliance building that we've seen for a generation or two. Uh, it's a restatement of American strategic power and purpose in the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, it's a new vehicle for Australia to lift its game militarily. And it even provides a way for the British to redefine their foreign policy interests post-Brexit. That, that's quite a powerful combination of countries and forces working together. So I don't think we should underestimate the significance of this new AUKUS agreement. Okay, it's significant, no question about that, but let's deal with the criticisms. This is Paul Keating, the former Prime Minister. Now, he says the agreement constitutes, in his words, a dramatic loss of Australian sovereignty, and that's because, according to Keating, it would rob Australia of freedom of choice in a future conflict where the US goes to war. How would you respond to Paul Keating? I just think that's absolute nonsense. I, I do not understand how giving yourself more military capability, which is what AUKUS will do, amounts to a loss of sovereignty. And Paul Keating uh, would, among all prime ministers, understand that, in fact, simply because you buy military equipment from the United States, as he did, uh, does not undermine your capacity to make independent decisions. You know, I think it's quite funny, Tom, that former prime ministers always assume that only they could make the wise decisions and that all their successes are fools and going to damn their country to military stupidity. That's simply not the case. Uh, Australian governments will always retain the capacity to make judgments about when and where they go to war. But if they ever have to do that, surely you want, to, you want them to make that decision with the strongest defence force that our budget can buy. Okay, but Keating's not alone. Uh, he's another uh, former Prime Minister. This is Malcolm Fraser. Of course, he was a Liberal. But he made similar observations about a Canberra getting too close to the Americans. Now, here's Fraser just before he died in 2015. People do not realise the extent to which 
we have been entwined in United States policy in the last 15 or 20 years. At a time when the Cold War is over, the United States is now in the process of establishing a new Cold War in the Pacific. Her military policies failed in Vietnam, failed in Iraq, failing in Afghanistan. The Middle East is a mess and leaving all that behind, they say they're going to shift their forces to the Western Pacific. We are part of this part of the world and we don't want to be part of America's future mistakes in this region. But has the government been frank with Australians, saying where it might lead, saying that we're going to be asked to pay for a lot of it? It's America trying to tie us into their policy of containment, which is about the most dangerous position Australia could possibly be in. That was former Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser's last testament. That was on the ABC's One Plus One in 2015. Peter Jennings. Well, Tom, never never forget that Malcolm Fraser and Paul Keating, for that matter, assiduously worked to strengthen the American alliance when they were prime ministers. Uh, and in the case of Malcolm Fraser, of course, um, was uh, an aggressive uh, Cold War prime minister eager to fight the Russians after the invasion of Afghanistan down to the last American. Uh, you, know, you know, I think it's just uh, striking how former prime ministers often seem to, once they lose the discipline, of being briefed by the national security establishment, revert back to a type of undergraduate thinking about foreign policy. When Fraser was speaking in 2015, what what new Cold War? That that was absolutely the high point of American and Chinese integration in terms of the strength of their uh, economies uh, uh, trading together. Uh, and even in that period of time since then, I don't believe the region has. Uh, got to a point where we have a Cold War, we certainly have significant tensions between the United States and China, and it could move in that direction. But um, again, I, I think there is always a flaw on the part of former prime ministers to think that only they could make the wise decisions and all their successes are fools damning their own countries to silly military choices. In reality, it's not the case. Uh, and certainly you could hardly find a, a stronger supporter of the US alliance when he was in power than Malcolm Fraser. But Peter, are we backing the losing side here? Keating says that in a Western Pacific conflict, the US, and this is an America that has had its credibility and prestige badly damaged in the wake of those post 9-11 wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya. This is Keating's point. Fraser would agree with him. The US would have little chance against China with its supply chains far too strained. So is Canberra backing the wrong horse here? Canberra is for the most part backing its own strategic interests, which is not to find itself becoming subservient to a dominant China. Uh, I, I don't believe that there are many Australians that would want that outcome. And therefore, what we need to do is find ways where we can push back, raise the cost to China thinking that it can easily get away with military adventurism in the Indo-Pacific. And obviously, a central part of being able to raise those costs is to ensure that the United States remains engaged. It's, it's way too early to write the Americans off as being somehow in, incapable of dealing with the might that is the People's Liberation Army. Uh, you know, America is still by far the single largest military spender on the planet, more so than the next dozen or so countries combined. It has more capacity to project force with its 11 carrier battle groups than any other country in the world. And America has certainly, when push comes to shove, 
uh, capacity to use that military power when it feels it has no options to. So writing them off, it's way too early. Uh, it was way too early to write them off when Malcolm Fraser did, way too early to write them off when Paul Keating does. This is just wishful thinking in my view. What about US staying power? Not so much today in 2021, but in the next decade or two, Sam Rogovine from the Lowy Institute is among others. Their argument is that America's serious domestic troubles means that Washington, this is the argument, is bound to reorder priorities in favour of domestic affairs and place less emphasis on not just the Persian Gulf theatre and the European theatre, but also East Asia. Well, so, Tom, in two questions, we've gone from America is going to lead us to war in the Indo-Pacific to America is going to be inward looking and simply hasn't got the staying power to be here. Now, now which which is it, my friend? It, can't it be is both. a paradox, isn't it? Yes. It, it? Well, it's not a paradox. It's just confused thinking on the part of the mm. could have been champions. I mean, just let me tell you. America goes through ups and downs. Uh, you know, people think that America is facing tough times at the moment because of internal divisions and what's happened in Afghanistan. But you think back exactly 50 years and there were significant problems inside the United States due to the civil rights movement and due to their experience in Vietnam. And yet America rebounded from that. Uh, it is a country with infinite capacity to reinvent itself with a tremendous ability to uh, put itself at the next stage, the next forward point of growth and productivity. Um, again, I just make the point, it's way too early to write off the Americans. My guest is Peter Jennings. He's the Executive Director of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute in Canberra. Now, Peter, here's another criticism of the AUKUS agreement. This is the ANU's Hugh White, like you, another prominent defence strategist. Here he is on the ABC's 7.30. The fact is that most other countries in Asia don't share our approach and America's approach to China. So I think in Southeast Asia, and for that matter, further north, there'll be a lot of people who'll, who'll look at this, they might not complain about it out loud, but they'll look at it and see it as a negative development because it further entrenches the idea that we've got a new Cold War in Asia with America on the one side and China on the other. They're stuck in the middle. They don't want to choose. They see that Australia has made a choice. That's uh, Hugh White on the ABC 7.30. Uh, Peter, isn't it true that, in a way, Canberra seems to be at least more outspoken in its support for the US Security Alliance, whereas other states in the region are sitting on the fence? That's Hugh White's argument. Your response? I think there's a difference between the language that some countries use and, and the underlying strategic concerns that they have. Uh, you know, there's no question that Australia, uh, perhaps uniquely in the region, speaks in a very frank way, which is part of our national character, we would like to think. But I can tell you that Japan, for example, is a country which is as equally concerned, if not more, than Australia uh, about the growing aggressiveness uh, of China. Uh, India likewise. And for that matter, Tom, many countries in Southeast Asia as well, although they, they're going to tend to be less likely to say that. Um, I utterly refute the thought that there would be many people genuinely thinking in Southeast Asia that the AUKUS agreement uh, is driving Australia towards uh, promoting some sort of Cold War situation in the region. Um, those countries, for the most part, whilst they might want to be the good cop in, in the region, they're perfectly happy for Australia to be the bad cop in the region and actually to be strengthening our military capabilities 
and talking openly about the aggression that China is presenting to those to those very countries. You know, I, I, I didn't recall many countries in Southeast Asia complaining about how China was driving the region to a Cold War when China was militarising islands in the South China Sea between 2014 and 2016. But they were all, I can assure you, deeply concerned by that development. So you have to have a bit of a discount factor between the language that you might get from some politicians or from some media commentators in the region and indeed what in their heart of hearts Asian strategic planners are thinking. They're all concerned about China right now. Okay, one final criticism we'll often hear is the optics, the Anglosphere. Now, this is uh, Yun Jiang. She's the director of ANU's China Policy Centre. This was on the ABC's PM last week. With this agreement and under the current government, generally, we're looking more to the West and our Anglosphere partners much more. It's almost like we're back to seeking security from Asia rather than security in Asia. We're not putting as much effort into broadening and deepening our relationship with other countries in the Asian region. That's Yun Jiang from ANU on the ABC's PM. Peter Jennings, is it true to say that Australia is not really engaged with many countries in the region in response to China? No, that's that's a ridiculous comment. I mean, it may be true of the AUKUS agreement that was agreed last week, but what about the Quad, which is about one of the least anglospheric things you could point to? It's uh, bringing together Australia, the US, Japan uh, and India. Uh, you know, Australia continues to actively engage with many, many countries in the region seeking to build security. A disappointment for me is that ASEAN has turned out to be such a weak instrument uh, when it comes to actually looking after the security of the Southeast Asian region. You know, we are in this year on the, the 25th anniversary of ASEAN seeking to negotiate a code of conduct with China about its operations in the South China Sea. 25 years, Tom, and they have been unable to negotiate a basic document that would uh, design how China would interact with the, the, uh, the countries of Southeast Asia. Um, you know, in the absence of the Indo-Pacific region being able to uh, group together strongly to protect the interests of the region in the way that NATO does, for example, it's, it's hardly surprising that Australia should be reaching to uh, its two historically closest allies, the United States and the UK. Um, it's only those countries which can provide Australia with the capacity to lift our Navy to the level of having nu nuclear-propelled submarines. And it's also a reflection of our history, which I don't think we should repudiate simply because we also put a lot of effort into engaging with, with uh, uh, countries in our region. So, uh, again, I, I think we have seen a lot of convenient excuses uh, which will tell you that the Americans are too strong, the Americans are too weak, Australia is too bellicose in the region, Australia is looking too much out of the region for our support. I, I think all of these things uh, are kind of debating points. You know, at the end of the day, what Australia is seeking to do with AUKUS, with Osman, uh, with the uh, Quad arrangements, uh, with our defence engagement with countries in the region, we, we are trying to bolster regional security in ways which lift the price of China going to military conflict, for example, over Taiwan, to too high a level, to a level where Beijing will simply say, no, this is not worth it. That's, so, I think, frankly, the most useful contribution Australia can make, not only for its own peace and security, uh, but for the peace and security of the Indo-Pacific region as a whole. Peter, as always, it's great to have you on RN. 
It's my pleasure, Tom. Thanks for having me on. Peter Jennings is Executive Director of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute in Canberra. This is Between the Lines with Tom Switzer. Well, now, the most intriguing aspect of the past 18 months is the good grace shown by younger generations of Australians. It's they who have sacrificed their way of life to protect their elders. However, as the scale of that cost becomes apparent, will this goodwill evaporate? After all, younger generations will end up bearing most of the cost of COVID. So how do young Australians see the handling of the pandemic? Now, if you have children or grandchildren, what are they thinking? Well, we're delighted to hear from two Australians who are at the very early stages in the corporate workplace. Kate Jackson is a paralegal at King's Law Prince Lawyers who specialise in immigration law. Kate is currently completing her honours and a fellowship at the Gilbert and Tobin Centre of Public Law. That's at the University of New South Wales. Hi there, Kate. Hi, how are you going? Very good indeed. Anjali Nataranjane graduated from Macquarie University last year. Anjali is now based at Minter Ellison in Sydney. Anjali, how are you? Good, thanks. It's great to be here, Tom. Now, Kate, start with you. Can you tell us about your experience of the pandemic? Yeah, so I think I've been pretty lucky in general. I've been able to see my family short of lockdowns. Um, They all live in Sydney as well, and I've been at university or studying the whole time. Um, I think the most unique aspect of my experience during COVID was I was actually overseas at the beginning of January 2020 and was coming home right as we became aware of COVID-19. So I think just that stark contrast that the day that I flew home was kind of when airports were starting to wear hazmat suits, that put it in really sharp perspective. But other than that, I think, yeah, I've been really privileged. I just obviously haven't been able to see any friends or family in the past three months, which has been really difficult. Join the club. Uh, and of course, one of the big issues when we talk about our experiences of the pandemic is is those tensions between federal and state governments during this crisis. Anjali, how do you think governments generally have managed the pandemic? Um, I think when we look at the response from the state and federal approach, we've seen a a really big shift, in my opinion, between the balance of power. So um, the pandemic has really shown that state premiers are the steerers of the nation's fate. Um, We've seen their response to adopting this agenda of big spending, interventionism, and essentially relegating financial responsibility to the federal government. Um, Throughout the pandemic, um, I personally looked at Scott Morrison and felt that his role has been reduced in all of this. You know, he's unable to control the states, you know, knee-jerk border closures, um, erosions in our civil liberties, even these disproportionate lockdowns that are incurring, you know, significant social and economic costs, and there's no way for him to really override state-based decisions. Um, And overall, I think in terms of the state and federal approach, uh, there's been less cohesion, I think, uh, less clear-cut decisions when it comes to a national roadmap or plan out of the virus. And I think that really brings a lot of concern to me in the way that the government has responded and the mismanagement related to it. Yeah, only a few times in history has one event affected, you know, every aspect of our national life. You think of the Spanish flu, uh, in 1918, 1919, World War One, uh, World War Two, the Great Depression. It's pretty rare. Kate, how well do you think governments have responded to this crisis? 
Yeah, so I think the first thing to acknowledge, kind of as you're saying, it is a really unique circumstance. So there's a really steep learning curve at the beginning of the pandemic. I think it's understandable in some circumstances that federal or state governments might make what we, you know, look on uh, with hindsight as mistakes. But I think something that I found really disappointing coming out of this is that we we haven't had a clear roadmap and it feels like, you know, New South Wales, for example, only really got this clear idea of what our vaccination plan was going to be and how we were going to kind of manage COVID once there was this uh, new outbreak that posed a really significant health risk. Um, and I think even as Anjali was saying, perhaps there there has been, Scott Morrison has been relegated somewhat uh, through growth of state power. But I think that's also his fault. He had the opportunity, you know, we know in June 2020 to negotiate for vaccines from Pfizer that would have arrived by the end of 2020. And it's through his own inaction and failure to take meaningful leadership roles that he has kind of lost that legitimacy and that that power to command. Anjali, what concerns do you have about the, the approach taken during the past 18 months? I think what particularly concerns me is not only the lack of proportionality in the responses to pandemic measures, but in particular the prolonged lockdowns, um, which have become somewhat of a new normal in my opinion. You know, while some restrictions I believe are needed to curtail the spread of the COVID-19 virus, um, particularly among more vulnerable populations, what we are seeing are really hard lockdowns being imposed even when, you know, the hospitalisation rates are relatively low. Um, And I also see this as a problem in the fact that it's abolishing fundamental freedoms and rights, inflicting really, really big social and economic costs. And that really undermines uh, the roots of a healthy democracy. And as someone in my early 20s, I'm concerned about how these prolonged lockdowns are impacting upon younger people, particularly in the education. You know, kids are facing lost time and learning, um, disengagement from the classroom, and that could really translate into um, big gaps in their literacy or their numeracy rates later down the track. I was in my final year of university when the first um, slate of lockdowns hit and I saw students um, were missing out on opportunities you know, for practical training, networking, international work um, and study, which are really vital for, more, for a more well-rounded education and for global competitiveness in the job market. And even within the domestic domain, you see a lot of students doing coursework in medicine or teaching or nursing, and they're they're not able to complete practical aspects of their degree, which would translate to potentially delayed career starts or a difficulty entering the market, even just setbacks early in employment, which is very problematic. If you just tuned in, you're on RN. This is Tom Switzer and my guests are Kate Jackson and Anjali Nadarajain. And we're addressing the COVID fallout for younger generations, younger generations of Australians, how they see the pandemic and the government's response to the crisis. Now, there's been a lot of criticism levelled at the ineffective delivery of important information about restrictions, health services, vaccines. Let's hear from the Queensland Chief Health Officer, She's been blamed for the slow take-up of the AstraZeneca vaccine. We've had very few deaths due to COVID-19 in Australia in people under the age of 50. And wouldn't it be terrible that our first 18-year-old in Queensland who dies related to this pandemic died because of the vaccine? That was Dr Jeanette Young. This at a time when we are being told to get vaccinated. Kate... Do you think the damage of the Delta virus could have been lessened with better messaging? 
Yeah, I definitely agree. I think it is a really tricky line to walk. You don't want to uh, encourage people to take vaccines that perhaps don't have uh, you know, good efficacy in other side effects. But I feel like it took, you know, a good two months after those statements were made to really get good messaging, breaking down the percentage of risk. And uh, even just as a personal example from my own life, I actually got bitten by a dog in Guatemala um, and had to get a rabies vaccination Goodness. in, yeah, in a very small uh, regional health clinic. And, you know, I was, I was really anxious about receiving that vaccination. I didn't know much about the healthcare system in Guatemala, but to me, it's a no brainer. It was, do I want mm. to potentially contract rabies or do I want to receive this vaccination? I think that's the exact same situation with the COVID vaccines, like the stark risks and harms need to be really laid out. But I think even beyond the individual harm, you also need to think about the social good. I would feel so incredibly awful um, knowing that if I contracted COVID, uh, I had the potential to spread it to the community or to my family or my grandparents. And I think that was the messaging that needed to come out from the very beginning. And it would have potentially avoided the more recent Delta outbreaks. Okay, well, let's address the broader intergenerational issues arising from the pandemic or perhaps being overlooked due to the pandemic. Uh, Anjali, first to you, what should we be focused? What should policymakers, political leaders, what should they be focused on as we emerge out of the pandemic? Tom, I think two particular things really come to mind, um, one of them being the coronavirus debt that has been incurred, and the second being housing affordability, which is, I think, a very much a key concern for my generation. So my concern is how are we going to repay all of this excessive spending, this excessive borrowing? And what about housing affordability? Yeah, with housing affordability as well, I think a lot of my generation has become disillusioned by the exorbitant price of home ownership. Um, and I think in the longer term, we, sh we need to think about um, how we can cut back on things like planning and zoning restrictions, um, you know, reducing the cost of land use and development and opening up more land to buyers. Because I think that too many people often blame tax concessions and interest rates, which, by the way, are currently at an all-time low for high um, house prices when one of the biggest culprits is planning. So ensuring that we have um, strong measures in place to ensure that we can open up more land will be very important um, as opposed to Band-Aid solutions that we currently have to the unaffordability okay. issue. So Kate, what keeps you up late at night as we emerge out of the pandemic? Yeah, so I think short term, I would actually uh, disagree with Anjali. I think obviously, you know, we should be concerned with Australia's debt. But from my perspective, short term, we should be much more concerned with people staying home. And if that means that we have to have an increase in government spending, that is a worthwhile trade-off. Because I think that you know, even as we see that COVID continues to spread, uh, even though there are very strict lockdowns, that's because people in vulnerable economic situations are forced to choose between maybe having a bit of a sore throat, probably not thinking they have COVID, um, and they're forced to choose between, you know, should they go to work in that situation or should they not make any money that day? So I think, if anything, we should be increasing our spending to support people uh, who are in vulnerable situations. I think the second thing, um, perhaps, you know, not through a strictly COVID lens, but we can take things that we have learnt from COVID um, and flexibilities in the workplace or in um, social welfare programs that have been adopted and then you know, apply them moving forward. I think it's been, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, we saw that 
uh, there was increased housing availability for people who were homeless. And that was, you know, because we wanted to prevent them from contracting COVID. But if we can do that under COVID, I don't understand why we can't do that long term. Kate Underley, a lively exchange uh, between future leaders. (laughs) Thanks so much for being on RN. Not a problem. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much, Tom. Kate Jackson is a paralegal at King's Law Prince Lawyers and Anjali Natarajain is a graduate lawyer at Minter Ellison. Well, that's it for the week. And remember to hear this or past episodes, including last week's tribute to Neville Bonner, our nation's first Aboriginal parliamentarian. Just go to abc.net.au slash rn and follow the prompts to Between the Lines. Or, of course, you can just go to the ABC Listen app where you can download us for free or wherever you get your shows online. I'm Tom Switzer, and thanks for listening. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.